it. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. And I will just say, if that sound happens while I'm preaching, just go ahead. I'd like my funeral on Thursday. And uh, I'll, I'll uh, just pick out some good songs. And, uh, but, yep, no distractions. Don't let, it, don't let it mess with us. Those things don't happen very often around here. Philippians chapter 4 is where we're going to be today, continuing a series through the book of Philippians. I want to make a comment about worship for just a second because both of our services today, service today as every Sunday, uh, man, we just had a really, really good time of worship. And there's a temptation for us to feel like the worship is a lead-in to the message, right? And, uh, the, you know, the, 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 the music and the singing and all of those things really just kind of prepare our hearts for the sermon. But let me just remind us that a worship can stand alone on its own really, really well and really easily. Worship, if all we did in this place was worship, it would be okay. Now, ideally, it's great to partner those things together, worshiping the Lord and then looking into His Word, which we do every single Sunday. But man, we are blessed to be able to have a God to worship in the first place, right? Who has redeemed us and who has revealed himself through his word. And when we sing, it's not just singing words on a page or on a screen. We get to engage him in worship that means something to him and means something to us. And so what an amazing time of worship today. And I'm really excited to look into this passage of scripture we're going to see as we continue Uh, in the series in the book of Philippians. We've been in it for a few weeks now, I think about three months or so, and uh, 12 or 13 weeks, and we are in chapter 4 today, starting in chapter 4 and uh, moving through for the next few weeks or so uh, through the end of this book. So the book of Philippians chapter 4, we're going to look at the first few verses this morning. So historically through the years, right, you've become familiar, I'm sure, with a lot of real high-profile feuds and conflicts through the years. And uh, whether it's in the sports world, the political arena, everyday life, you know, it seems as though when people People don't get along, it, it makes the public news really, really quickly and easily. In the sports world, because I love sports, one of the most famous ones, I would say, was a feud from a number of years ago between two incredibly type A alpha males uh, sports figures, Shaquille O'Neal and Kobe Bryant, right? It was when they played with the Lakers. They, they didn't play their whole career together largely because they had some struggles getting along. But uh, in their days with the, uh, with the Lakers, you can see here, you know, they played together. It was in Cur- uh, Kobe's early days in the, in the, uh, in the NBA. And uh, they played together for eight seasons, over 450 games. They won three NBA championships in L.A. together. They had a lot of success, but what a lot of people remember is they could not get along, right? They argued over so many different things. There, there was bickering over who had the most jersey sales. There was bickering over who the offense would run through. There was bickering over virtually everything that you could imagine, and it rarely stayed private. It almost always went public. They found a way to make it work. But they didn't play their whole careers together for a reason. A lot of it was because of their personal differences. When you think about in history conflict, there's probably two families that come to the forefront. And uh, those who are under the age of 30, I guess, maybe today would maybe not be familiar with this family. But who is this? These are the Hatfields and the McCoys. This is one of them. I don't know who. I'm sure the other didn't want to come for the picture because they couldn't get along, right? And historically now, a lot of times when you talk about groups that don't get along, what will we say? Boy, they're like the Hatfields and the McCoys. We don't have a clue what the issue was. We don't know the historical uh, story behind it, but we use them as an example still today. So these folks live back in the 80s and the 90s, not the 1990s or 80s, back in the 1880s or 90s. And uh, the, the, the basics was these were two families that lived right across from one another with a border creek running between them. One family was in West Virginia, one was in Kentucky. 
and uh, it had a little something to do with a stolen hog. It had a little something to do with some murder, and uh, they had even married into each other's family. It just got really super messy and ugly. And whenever we think about disagreement today, a lot of times these names, even if we don't know the story, often comes to the forefront. So another example of, um, of conflict, let's take a look at this, this next slide. We remember this one, right? From a year, year and a half, I don't even know how long it has been now. This one, for some reason, made uh, the news like around the world. It was a slap heard around the world. And it got a lot of attention for way too long. And, uh, of course, uh, this is Will Smith and Chris Rock. And uh, I, I, I don't know if they've sorted it out. I haven't really checked the story in a while. But, uh, but a lot of folks remember this. And it was just another high-profile feud, another high-profile conflict. And then there's a TV show, right, that's built around conflict and feuding, and that is the show Survivor. I mean, it, it, outwit, outplay, outlast, and, and also, also you can put on there outscheme, outdeceive, you know, outlie about. I mean, all these other things. It's a part of the show. The whole show is about trying to survive and make it through everybody else on this island trying to, 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 to hang you out to dry and get rid of you. I mean, that, the whole show has made its story, has made its whole plot line off of this. And here's the thing. When we think about conflict specifically, there's a principle. We're going to look at a few principles today, and uh, they're going to come right out of Scripture. Uh, but, but the principle I want to start with is that for every one of us, I mean, conflict is a fact of life. Conflict is something that all of us ultimately can, can relate to. It's, it, it's, it, we're not immune to conflict. It has a way of making its way into every single life in this room Today, and if you're watching a live stream, it's made its way into your life as well. I mean, mine also. We, we all have stories to tell of instances of conflict. Sometimes that conflict invades our families. Sometimes it makes for some really awkward experiences within family, right? Think Thanksgiving. Think Christmas. Think special events where you know you're going to be seeing other people in the family. And sometimes you know that when you see them, it's going to be awkward because you're not getting along. There was something that was said. There was something that was done. Or there was something that was not said or not done somewhere back in the day or maybe recently. And now there is conflict. You are not immune to conflict, right? You've experienced it. You've been touched by it. You, you've, you've, had, uh, uh, you've had to deal with it ultimately. Sometimes it's in the workplace, Right, you don't have to raise your hand here because maybe a coworker's in the room and that would get even more awkward. But have you ever in your workplace, wherever you work, if you work in an office environment or a setting where it involves multiple people, not just like a single staff, have you ever had an instance where maybe you walked a different way to the break room or, or, or a different way just to avoid someone's office or their cubicle or their space, right? Because you remember that last staff meeting when you got into it or, or that last thing that they, you heard they said to the boss or the supervisor about you, right? And, and, and so now there's conflict in the workplace. Maybe it's conflict with a neighbor. Maybe they cut their grass a step and a half over to your property and you think they're going to try to take over your yard now, right? There's this conflict. They trimmed my bushes. I can't believe they did this. You know, it, it, conflict comes in all kinds of ways, Sometimes it comes in marriage, right, where you, you, can, you can go to sleep at night so close physically to the person you're married to and yet emotionally be so far away because there's that conflict, right? And, and, and conflict is something that, that none of us are immune to. We've all experienced it. We've all had to deal with it. We've all walked through that valley. Maybe even right now some of you are walking through that valley. When we begin to wonder, so where does this whole conflict thing come from, 
Well, the easy answer is sin, right? I mean, we're in church, so I guess we can say, well, it's sin. But let, let's, let's fine-tooth comb it a little bit more. Let, let's kind of do maybe a, a bit of a, an autopsy, if we can call it that, on conflict. And, uh, and, and let's see where it comes from. I think one of, the ways, one of the reasons conflict comes in our lives is because we're human, you know? We're human people. We're imperfect. We don't have it all figured out. We, we aren't always really good at promoting peace. And when you take one imperfect person who has a long way to go to be like Jesus and you drop them into the space of another person who has a long way to go to be like Jesus, uh, there's going to be conflict. And so a lot of times conflict comes simply because we're human. Other reasons conflict comes is because of jealousy, right? We just get jealous of other people sometimes. And let's just be honest. Sometimes you see someone who has something that you don't have and... Um, this animosity begins to build because you think, well, they don't work nearly as hard as I do, or, or they, don't, they don't treat their family nearly as well as I treat my family, or they don't do this as well as I do this, and, 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 and we begin to get jealous, and what happens is there's this conflict that begins to come. We don't want to spend time with that person. We don't want to be in that person's space, and conflict comes as a result of it. The Bible even mentions that. You don't have to turn here for the sake of time, but James chapter 4, uh, verses 1 and 2 it kind of goes there. It says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you, James says? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you don't have, so you commit murder. You're envious, right? You're jealous and you can't obtain, so you fight and you quarrel, right? There's conflict there because of that, that envy, that jealousy. You do not have because you do not ask. And sometimes jealousy leads ultimately to conflict, but more often than not, when we think about uh, conflict in our lives, where it comes from is from pride and from selfishness. I think maybe more than anything else. It's this sense of pride that says, let's just say there's a conflict between you and someone else. And uh, it's beginning to kind of gain some speed, and it's starting to smolder, and there's smoke filling the relationship, right? And, and, and you begin to look at that. When you think about it, often what happens is, in the midst of that disagreement, there's one or two who say, there's no way that I can possibly be wrong in this disagreement, right? That's pride. There's no way. I know I'm right here. I, I know my perspective is right. I know my opinion is right. I know I'm on the right side of this conflict. They just got to get themselves figured out. They got to get themselves right. And when they do, we can have peace, the conflict to be over. But for now, right, pridefully, we say, I am the one who's in the right. And oftentimes, pride is what leads to conflict, whether it's in marriage, whether it's in relationships within the family, whether it's with coworkers, or even inside the church, right? There's so much conflict that comes inside churches just like this. God's been good here, and he's protected us from so much of that through the years by his grace, right? But sometimes it's the churches themselves that have to deal with so much of that mess that comes ultimately from conflict. And many times it's just pride or it's just selfishness that comes. Galatians chapter 5, Paul is writing to the churches in the region of, of Galatia. In chapter 5, verse 15 and 16, he says something that's really a really great warning. He says, if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Right? It's not going to turn out well. <laughs> If you're going to just take shots at each other and little bites out of the person here and another bite there with some of the words you say or things we do, he says, be careful because you're going to eat each other alive. Verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. And then I think another reason that sometimes we experience conflict in our lives, again, we're not immune to it, is because of insecurity. You know, let's kind of be honest. Because of insecurity. Pride says there's no, in the midst of conflict, there's no way I can be wrong. 
Insecurity says, I don't think I can own up to the fact that I might be wrong. I can't handle being wrong. And so it's insecurity sometimes that keeps two people or two groups in the midst of conflict. Because one is not willing to take that first step and to say, you know what, I'm the one at fault here. And it's insecurity that keeps the conflict gaining speed and moving forward. There's a second principle here that I think is important for us to recognize because just as conflict applies to every one of us, principle number two, even private conflict has a way of going public. Even that conflict we think we've kept under wraps and and we say, you know what, it's just me and my boss. You know what, it's just me and my spouse. It's just me and my son, me and my daughter, me and that family member, right, who lives four states away. This is just between us. You know, it's private. We'll get it sorted out sometime. We think it's just private, and we think that conflict only pertains to us and maybe one or two other people or my group and that group, right? But here's the thing, and we all know this. Every example that I listed on on the screens there, right, those images that I put, those were all public. They they were private, but they became very, very public to the point to where everybody knows about them now. And in our, in our case, whenever we go through times of conflict, whether it's in our family, with our kids, or with a family member, or with a coworker, or with a neighbor, or inside of church even, whenever we find ourselves in the midst of, of con... Can you all hear me? Is this good? We're going to have conflict up there in the sound booth. All right, so we have no idea what's going on with all this. So I'll just keep talking. I have a feeling you're going to lose your hearing by the end of this message, but... Do I need a handheld? Do I need a handheld mic? Can you all hear me? Good? Okay, you're good. All right lovely. So whenever we find ourselves in those places where we think that our conflict with another person is just between us and them, listen, here, here's the fallout. Every conflict has, has fallout. That we may think it's us and a spouse, but the kids are really the ones dealing with it. Right? We may think it's us and a coworker, but it's the office that has to deal with it. Because even though we think, hey, this is our fire to put out, listen, everybody else in the room is breathing the smoke, Right? Some of you were raised in environments where you know for sh- you know that's the way it worked because your mom and dad could not get along, and then you ultimately kind of breathe the smoke of that, and you still to this day don't know who was right, who was wrong. It was just an environment of conflict, and you had to learn how to navigate that kind of as an outsider. You've been on the outside of those conflicts as well. In the, in the workplace, in an office where, you know, two people aren't getting along in the office and you've had to try to learn to navigate that. Maybe one you avoid and another one you don't, but you, you try to kind of work all that out. The reason for it is because the simple principle is that even though we think our conflict is private, it always tends to go public. We, ha- we have a guy here in our church named Marty Youngblood. Many of you know Marty. He's preached here on a couple of occasions he and his wife Daphne are part of our church family, but because of the ministry they're involved in, both of them serve with the Georgia Baptist Mission Board. They are often on the road, right? So um, I give Marty a hard time, like, man, when you come into church? But he's really in another church somewhere else preaching or, or helping. And one of the things that Marty has done really, really well through the years is that he helps churches navigate conflict. And so when I realized this is what I was going to be uh, speaking about today in this passage that we're going to get to, I texted him and I said, Marty, so if you could, this is what I'm preaching on. He gave me permission to share his response. Uh, I asked him, so in in churches that you go to, uh, what would you say is often the reason for the conflict that you see so many times just around Southern Baptist churches in our state, all right? And, uh, And again, remember, a lot of the issues in churches 
are really reflective of issues on a personal level as well. So here's what he said. He said, in my experience, and Marty has done this. I'm not talking a couple of churches. I'm talking a long list through the years. He says, in my experience with Georgia Baptist churches, 80% of major conflicts begin with small disagreements. You ever had that happen in your family, right? Maybe with a husband and wife, you find yourself arguing over, um, you know, supper that didn't turn out so well. (laughs) But you're really not arguing over spaghetti and meat sauce. You're arguing over something two weeks, three weeks, two months, three months, two years, three years that wasn't ever resolved. It's interesting Marty says that about churches because I think it also applies in many cases on a personal level. And so he, he makes this comment. He says, in my experience... 80% start with small disagreements, often among people in the congregation who are emotionally and spiritually unhealthy or have unresolved conflict from the past. Most conflicts center around power and control, the direction of the church, how resources are spent, leadership like pastor, staff, deacons. Other conflicts center around personalities that that just don't get along or work well together. Occasionally, listen to this, Occasionally, you have some theological or biblical disagreement, but not very often. (laughs) Overall, I would say conflict is always around us. The difference is when we have our focus on the gospel, we don't often notice or even get involved with the conflict around us. It's, It's so interesting that he would say that the majority of the types of conflict that that break disun or break unity in churches have little to do with theology or doctrine. I caught that. I stopped it, I hope. In your community where you grew up, maybe you can think back or even here in our own city. Sometimes you'll see churches like this one that's the First Baptist, First Methodist, First Presbyterian, First Community, whatever. And it's not uncommon a few miles away to see a second Baptist, second Methodist, second Presbyterian, second community. Why is that? Because the second figured it out better than the first? Not always is this the case, but many times it's because they couldn't get along. We're going to set up somewhere else. Let's just be the second or the third, or the 14th, or the 15th. Sometimes my experience has been, uh, again, not always, maybe you're raising one of these and it wasn't that way, but a lot of times when you see a church that's called New Hope, New Vision, New Life, right? It's because the old hope, the old vision, the old life, something wasn't jiving, right? (laughs) A lot of times that's the way it is. And it's sad, and like Marty said, and he knows his stuff, rarely is it over doctrine rarely is it over anything theological or biblical and the reason I mention that is not because I'm wanting to make this sermon about us as a church Uh, certainly this is important and we need to be mindful of it but a lot of the same stuff happens in our own personal relationships as well oftentimes conflict is around things that should be easily resolved here's what John MacArthur says I found this quote this week speaking on a church level he says even if its doctrine is sound even if its doctrine is sound disunity robs a church of its power and destroys its testimony And a church facing hostile external enemies, right, can't afford to have its members fighting among themselves. Such infighting frequently gives the enemies of the cross an avenue of attack. The resulting discord, disunity, and conflict could have devastated the integrity of the Philippian church's testimony. So he's talking about the Philippian church specifically. This had to be dealt with. So on that note, let's go ahead and jump in. Philippians chapter 4. 
And let's begin to read these first three verses. Let's look at what the issue was here in the church in Philippi. Paul is writing this letter a few years after he had planted this church in Philippi. Now he's writing this letter to them. He's in prison in Rome uh, because of his faithfulness to the gospel. He writes this letter to the Christians in Philippi. He had planted this church, and now they're all going to gather together. They're going to read this letter, and we get to read exactly what it was that he said. In chapter 4, 1 through 3, he deals with much of what I just talked about. He says, therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, right? He loved these people dearly. He says, in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Iodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. All right, so Paul has already talked about earlier in the book of Philippians, he's talked about how God is molding us, shaping us, transforming us, sanctifying us, right? He's, he's shaping you into the image of Jesus. We talked about this on our podcast this past week. I think it was Eric maybe, or one of the guys made the comment that, that, that it's almost like God is, is chiseling off all those things that don't look like Jesus in our lives. And uh, he, he's creating this masterpiece, right? We're saved in an instant, but he's molding and shaping us into the image of Jesus over time. And so Paul has talked about that already earlier in Philippians uh, in, in the first three chapters. He's also talked about ultimately that we are to desire Christ above everything else, right? Everything else is like garbage compared to Jesus in a sense, in comparison. That he is to be our primary focus. He's to be our highest desire is to be Jesus himself. So it's in that context then, Paul now deals with this issue of conflict, and it's a very real issue of conflict that was happening in this church in Philippi. Verse 1, look at what he says. He tells them specifically in verse 1, he says, my beloved brethren that I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord. In other words, he's, in, he, he's telling them, you need to do what you know is biblical and what is right, okay? He's already dealt with conflict earlier in this letter, and he's told them to stand firm, stand firm in the truth, stand firm in the gospel, right? Verse 2, he says, I urge Iodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Now, this is interesting. This is where, <laughs> this is where it gets really interesting because, remember, these, these people in Philippi in the first century, they didn't have one of these, okay? They didn't have a nice leather-bound, uh, mine's struggling, right, my... Uh, I got kind of two things going on here. So my duct tape failed me, and I've had this thing over 20, this Bible over 20 years. So they didn't have one of these. What they had was a letter. And when Paul wrote Philippians, he sent this to them as a letter. He penned the words to the letter. He sent it by a man named Epaphroditus. How do we know that? Because he says it later in chapter 4. And he sent this letter to the Christians in Philippi. It's hand-delivered. Uh, we can assume then that they didn't have a building like this. Buildings like this didn't show up until the 3rd or 4th century. We can assume they were in somebody's house, probably, right? I mean, 10,000, 20,000 people. Some have speculated in Philippi, uh, certainly far less than that, were believers. There would have been one church, right? They would, followers of Jesus, they would have gathered, maybe in Lydia's house. Acts 16 mentions her. She was the first one to place her faith in Jesus in Philippi. Right? Maybe it was in the Philippian jailer's house. He came to Christ too in the city of Philippi. We don't know whose house. But more than likely, they're gathered together in a house. All the believers are assembled. Maybe they've just had their fried chicken, mac and cheese, apple pie, and sweet tea. Maybe. I don't know. And they're sitting there and they're reading this letter. And they get 
to what we call chapter 4. It would have just been like a long letter, a long email that Paul would have done, right? It didn't have chapter headings. And they get here, and I don't know where these two people, Eodia and Syntyche, were sitting. I have a feeling it wasn't next to each other, right? And they hear their name mentioned by Paul. And there are some really glowing words that Paul says, and some very in-your-face-between-the-eyes words as well. We don't know a lot about these women. We, we know very little. Here's what we can gather from this passage right here. Number one, we know they're both women. That, that's not really of any consequence to it. It would just give some, some specifics here because he, he says that in verse 3. We know that they were believers because they would have been gathered with the church to hear this letter read. We know that they were faithful believers because he says in verse 3 that they were co-laborers. They had shared in his struggle. Now remember, when Paul says they shared in my struggle for the gospel, remember, this is a man who got beat up almost everywhere he went, drug out of cities, left for dead, stoned, beaten, thrown in jail. He was in prison right now when he wrote this book, right? And he, lo- he mentions these two women. He says, these are two people that have shared with me in my struggle. These are frontline people. These are followers of Christ who who are a part of this church family. And what we can also gather there as we look at those three verses is is that more than likely, whatever their disagreement was that Paul says, they got to get this sorted out. You got to get this worked out. It wasn't doctrinal because if it was of anything to do with truth, Paul would have said, listen, you're in the wrong, you're in the right, you need to come in line and shape up, right? He didn't do any of that. He didn't correct them. He said, you got to sort it out. So we don't know what they were arguing over. Maybe they were arguing over one got the shot and the other didn't, (laughs) right? Maybe they were arguing over what the menu was in church the last Wednesday night when they got together to pray. And one cooked and the other didn't say thanks. Maybe they argued over something that went back within their families a few weeks or months or years. But what we can assume is it wasn't anything doctrinal. Heaven and hell wasn't hanging in the balance here. And what we can also assume is it was of enough significance that what they may have thought was private had gone public to the point to where a man in prison in Rome heard about it. Our conflict doesn't stay private. There's always fallout in the lives of those that are around us. Paul tells them very specifically that they, he says, I urge you, Yodia, I urge you, Syntyche, he said to each of them, I urge you to live in harmony in the Lord. Get this worked out. Too much is at stake. The odds are way too high, right? You've got your joy that's suffering. You've got your peace that's suffering. You've got the testimony of the church that's suffering. You've got the, the well-being of those that are around you that are having to deal with all of this mess, right, that they're suffering. You need to get this worked out, he says. But, but then look, look at what he says in verse 3. Now, this is interesting because we live in a culture that when we see the dumpster fire, we want to video it and post it, right? We don't want to grab a fire extinguisher and put the thing out. We want to post it, get credit for what we saw. We don't want to help with anything. That's the culture we live in nowadays. Paul goes there in verse 3. Look at what he says. He brings others into the mix. He says in verse 3, Indeed, true companion, we don't know who that is specifically, or it may just be a reference to the whole church. He says, I ask you also, 
to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. He tells the church, help these people get this worked out. I heard Tony Evans years ago in a, in a Bible study that I was in. It was a video-based Bible study, and, I, and I, I saw him say this on the video, and it stuck with me. <clears throat> I don't remember if he was talking about this passage or not, but it overlays perfectly. He said, whenever Christians don't get along, right, and remember, it always goes public. It rarely stays completely private. He said, when Christians can't get along or when churches can't get along within themselves, he said, it's like the first century when the Romans would throw the Christians into the arena, right, onto the floor of the, the Colosseum or what have you, and they turned the wild animals, the, the lions, loose. And imagine that the, the stands are filled with people and they're watching this take place and the Christians are tossed to the floor of that arena and then the wild animals are set loose. He, Tony Evans said, and I love this illustration, he said, fighting amongst ourselves, it would be the same as those Christians who rather than turning their focus towards the lions, begin fighting and arguing with each other. He said, everyone in the stands would say, what fools, what a mockery, what a laughing stock. And he said, when Christians can't get along, when churches can't get along, the world outside says the same exact thing. Don't tell me about your God of peace. Don't tell me about your God of joy. Don't tell me about your God of forgiveness. Don't tell me about your God of reconciliation when you can't even get this worked out, right? And this applies to all of us, starting with the guy preaching it, because none of us are immune to conflict that comes in our lives. Paul says there, there is a, there's a point where the church, it doesn't mean we get up in everybody's business. It doesn't mean that every argument, we, we, you know, we like, dun, 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 I'm here. It doesn't mean that. But there are times where there are conflicts that really we're on the outside of that we could have a hand in helping to bring peace. And we need to be willing to do that for the sake of peace, for the sake of testimony, for the sake of relationship, for the sake of the gospel. Principle number three, there are consequences to conflict, as we've seen. Those fires always put off smoke that bleed over in other people's lives. So if it applies to all of us, if there are consequences that apply to all of us, if the Bible goes this far as to address it, then what are some things we can do to help resolve conflicts? Let me give you a list here, and then I'm, I'm pretty much done. Seven things here. I know what you think. When I hear a guy preaching and he says, I got seven things and it's almost time to go, I'm thinking, seriously? <laughs> you know, oh, we're going to move through these pretty quickly. But hopefully they can be helpful for you. Maybe today you're in the midst of conflict with someone and it's eating at you, it's tearing you apart, you're ready for it to be done, but you don't know quite how. Or maybe just file this away for down the road because it's going to come with somebody, someone you're married to, someone you're raising under your roof, someone who raised you, a coworker, friend, somebody in this church, or regardless. So what are some of these things that can be helpful? Number one, embrace a position of submission. This may be the hardest one. In Ephesians 5, it says a lot about husbands and wives. Husbands love your wives, wives submit to your husbands, and there's a lot of misunderstanding around that. But before Paul even talks about marriage in Ephesians 5, 20 and 21, he says to submit one to another. He's not talking about marriage in that context. He's talking about our relationships. He says to have a relationship where we are submissive one to another. Now, it doesn't mean that we compromise but again, more often, conflict doesn't deal with issues of fact or truth. It deals with issues of preference or desire, personal desire, selfishness. So when we look at this, embrace a position of submission, what it simply means is consider that other person as more important than yourself, 
right? It's not about winning. If we have conflict and our goal is to win, and some are wired that way, I'm going to get the last word, I'm going to get the loudest word, I'm going to get the final word, I'm, I'm going to make my point, and I'm going to win this thing, right? The, the problem with that mentality, with that strategy of dealing with conflict is that where there's a winner, there's a loser. When you're married to the loser in the conflict, it doesn't usually go well. It usually goes underground where the roots grow deep. So embrace a position of submission. Second thing we can do in dealing with conflict is to be slow to speak and quick to listen. Be slow to speak, be quick to listen. Wow, Brooks, that is brilliant. Where did you come up with that? James 1.19. So James says, the half-brother of Jesus, he says in James 1.19, he says, this you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Be slow to speak, quick to listen. Number three, don't take disagreement as a personal attack. Oftentimes what happens, you see this in our culture, you see this on social media, you see this in the news when, when two political parties aren't getting together, when two groups aren't getting together, and we see it on the personal level as well. We often have a hard time, maybe it's because of that insecurity that, that sometimes we have to grapple with, but we often have a hard time of separating disagreement from a personal attack. Every disagreement is not a personal attack, right? It's okay to disagree and then to sort that out. It shouldn't be a personal attack. Don't consider it when somebody disagrees with you, when it's that coworker sitting across from you and then you don't talk to them for three days because they had the audacity to disagree with you when you were sitting there talking about the next project or whatever, you know, and, and they slammed your name and I can't believe they... Every disagreement is not a personal attack. And don't make it into that as well, Right? Don't make it into a personal attack. Number four, take the high road when correction is not necessary. Take the high road when correction is not necessary. Remember, what did Paul, what did Paul not deal with in this issue with these, with these two people in the church? He didn't tell them to correct anything because correction was not the issue. Truth was not the issue. There was nothing in there where one could say I'm wrong and the other would say I'm right. right? It was just more than likely preferences, personal desires that created conflict, created dissension. Right? Oftentimes what happens with us when we have conflict, it has nothing to do with one being right, one wrong we think that that's what it is, many times it's just one who needs to swallow their pride, right, and take the high road. Now, if it's an issue of fact and truth, correct it in love, right, in grace, uh, uh, with humility. I'm not saying get walked over. If there's something needs to be corrected, corrected, correct it. But if it's not, if it's just a matter of preferences, a lot of times you can just take the high road and everything will end up working out and being fine. Number five, I think a fifth thing we can keep in mind is to be mature enough to admit our part of the mess, right? Don't dig the trench so deeply that we cannot come out and say, you know what, I'm a part of this problem. Own it. If we're part of the mess, own it. Own it so that it can get cleaned up. Which leads into number six, one of the most important, I think, of all, commit to display grace and humility. When we're in the midst of conflict, what I mean by this is if you've got one, let's say two people are at odds, if you've got one person willing to, to embrace humility and say, you know what, I'm a part of this problem. Uh, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have gone there. I, th- this is what I've done. I ask you to forgive me. Humbly ask you, would you forgive me? I blew it. And then you've got another person on the other side to say, you know what, uh, I understand. I shouldn't have done what I did. I shouldn't have responded the way I did. I extend grace and I forgive you. When you've got those two 
play, uh, pieces in play uh, in, in the midst of a conflict, one with humility and grace, the other with humility and grace. Listen, you're, you're, you are now on the fast track. You're in, the, you're in the, the fast lane to getting it reconciled. What often happens is one's not humble enough to say, I'm sorry, this was my fault, and the other's not willing to forgive and say, I'll show you grace. And then number seven, who takes the first step? I love this. I saw this in a book called Love and Respect that I read years ago. Whoever's the most mature takes the first step. So if you're in conflict, (laughs) you see where this is going, right? And you're not willing to take the first step to say, you know what, I blew it. Would you forgive me? What you're admitting to is I'm not mature enough to handle this like an adult, right? More often than not. Who takes the first step? Because we'll stay in our trenches till the other person takes the first step. Whoever's most mature in your faith as a follower of Jesus, lay down the insecurity, lay down the pride, lay down the selfishness. If it's facts and truth, deal with it humbly and with love. But if it's just a matter of preference, say, you know what? I shouldn't have done this. Would you forgive me? Well, Brooks, I've tried that, and the person would not come out of their bunker enough for us to make any headway. There's a great verse, I believe, that speaks to that, and we're almost, we're almost done. It's in Romans chapter 12, verse 18. It says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. I love the way it says it. Paul, I believe every word's inspired by God and those two in the English language, if possible, I believe are there for a reason. Some people aren't going to have peace. Some people, some people are more comfortable when there is conflict. I hope you're not one of them. Sometimes people will say, well, this church needs a drama ministry or that church. I'm convinced every church has a drama ministry, right? <laughs> in some way, form or fashion or other, right? Every church at some point in its history has had a drama ministry. I don't know where the button is. Maybe it's in a mechanical room somewhere, but there are, sometimes there are those. Thankfully, again, that rarely happens here. But there are those who know where it is, and they'll hit that button and create drama. Some people walk around with a drama button. And you try to have peace in the midst of conflict, and they won't have it. This is a great verse to keep in mind. If possible, control the controllables, right? Deal with what applies to you. As much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And when you've done that, all you can do is lay your head down in, in peace at night because God has to handle their heart, and you can't. Keep in mind, last principle, whenever we do reconcile, we reflect in beautiful fashion a God, the God of reconciliation. Who in the midst of our sin, the Bible says in Ephesians, we were enemies of God. Had nothing to bring to the table. Bankrupt, empty-handed, characterized by our sin. The Bible says that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That he took the first step. God was, compl- was, was a never at fault, lived a sinless life on this earth, Jesus did had no reason but by his grace and mercy to take that first step to bring reconciliation. And when he died on the cross and when he rose again from the dead, he paved the pathway for sinners like us to have a clean heart, a brand new start, uh, uh, hit the total reset button, and to have what was at enmity between us and God removed and brought together to where he now calls us as adopted children. When you reconcile and take that step, you're reflecting the God of reconciliation. So who are you at odds with today? How long are you going to let it linger? Is there a step you can take towards reconciliation, and are you willing to take it and trust the results to God?
And if you don't know him, man, what on earth is keeping you from taking that step to say, Jesus, I have blown it, I have sinned, and I ask you to forgive me and take over. Because when you do, he'll save you forever. Let's pray. Lord, it's amazing how your word speaks into the nitty-gritty of life, God. Every one of us here have been at odds with others to the point where it kept, it up, kept us up at night. We felt that internal struggle. You know, I don't want to admit I'm wrong. I don't want to be the first to ask for forgiveness. I don't, we, we, we've all done those gymnastics mentally and just sort of stayed in the mess of conflict. But God, thank you that here you mentioned two people by name and you even bring the church into it because you knew that the stakes are really high. And so, God, for any conflict represented in this room today and the lives of those watching online, I pray that you would just give real wisdom as to how to take that first step towards reconciliation. And, God, where reconciliation is not possible because the other person won't have it, I just pray that we'll do it the right way so that we can have peace in our lives as we move forward and trust in the results to you. And so, God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the handles that you put to it, that we know how to apply it. And God, for those today that don't have a relationship with you through Jesus, help them to understand there are no hoops to jump through. They don't have to clean up first or get better. That the first hoop is that of faith. The only one, if we even want to call it that, is the response of faith where we just admit our sin and invite you by faith, Jesus, to forgive and to, and to save us. And we thank you that you do. Help us to walk with you and to reflect you, God. For it's in Jesus' name.